Where did you say you are, Damon? Well, I'm at a golf course, Tom. It's um, a quite famous one. It's got the word sun in it and dale. And it is very sunny. <laughs> and it's a beautiful dale. And, and I'm looking out at the famous... I have a view in this office of the famous Sunningdale oak tree right outside this window. And listeners won't be able to appreciate that because I can't, we can't see on radio, obviously. On, I mean, on podcasts. It's beautiful. It's got a massive spread and it's their logo. And I basically am trying to squeeze in work and golf. Sunningdale is a serious golf course. Are you a bit nervous? No, I'm, I, I'm not nervous. I'm a professional athlete, Tom. I, I'm used to performing in front of large crowds. There aren't any large crowds, I have to say. I think just a few mates of mine. Actually, uh, I'm actually going to be playing with Simon Lazenby. I, I hope he doesn't mind me revealing that, but he's uh, obviously our presenter on Sky F1. So he's quite, he can, he can hit a very good ball, but he's a bit erratic. But don't tell him I said that. Wow. Yep. Okay. Um, well, good luck with that. Should we get on with the show? I think so. I think it's time, isn't it? We've got some races coming up. We've got a triple header. Are you ready for this? Deep breath. Let's do it. Off you go. You start. So, welcome to this edition of the F1 Nation podcast. It's me and Tom, and we've got a very special guest coming, haven't we? We have. We have. And actually, he's an old teammate of yours. When did you last see him? Well, I, I think we interviewed him a couple of races back. Uh, so not, not too often. But it seems like I've known, I've known him all my life because obviously I was a big fan when I was a young nipper coming up through the ranks. And, and Alan Frost was a, was a living god. And he still is one of my all-time driving heroes. Fantastic. There he is. Alan Prost on the show a little bit later. In the meantime, it's been quite a quiet week for Formula One. A lay week before the first triple header of the season. The biggest news that's come out of it is the changing of the guard at Williams. Simon Roberts, team principal, is gone. Jos Capito is taking on that role. Were you surprised to hear that news? Um, I was and I wasn't because I think there was, uh, at the time he was put in that position, it was a little bit like they were still getting their feet under the table at uh, Williams, having had the, the Doralton purchase of the team and so forth. So it takes a bit of time, I think. So, But I know listening to your, your interview with Jos Capito, um, uh, Tom, who is uh, also a bit of a, a legend on, on endurance motorbikes as well, I've, I've learned. Hey, legend on everything. So he, he's done the Dakar. Yeah. He's, he's been the boss of Volkswagen and Ford's uh, World Rally Championship programs. And here he is now the boss of, boss of Williams. Yeah. And... 100 days in charge, bang, big changes at the top. Yeah, so I think in a way you kind of expect people like that to want to put their own technical people in. The, and I'm not sure whether he actually chose Simon Roberts or not. I'm, I'm optimistic for Williams. I mean, it's, I mean I'm, obviously it's a, it's a bit of a blow for Simon Roberts uh, if that's what he um, you know, was expecting to stay a bit longer. But um, the team has got some good people in charge of it and, and hopefully he's okay and... Uh, and finds good employment uh, for his talent somewhere. Williams have said in their press release that it's to avoid the duplication of roles. And it sort of raises a bigger question about how Formula One teams are run, because since you retired from racing, <laughs> they've, they've acquired quite a lot of fat Formula One teams, haven't they? You know, the big ones, Mercedes, a thousand people. Williams, obviously smaller, but it's interesting that with the cost cap, they are streamlining a bit. They've got to streamline it. They, they grew massively after I left Formula One. When I was at Williams, we had 150 people. And that was one of the bigger teams. And then when they got 
BMW, and there was a kind of massive growth in Formula One teams, the size of Formula One teams, and it went up to about 600 and something people. And then they moved factory as well, and, and there was an expansion, huge expansion of teams. And of course, now we have Mercedes at Brackley are about a thousand people. I think they've cut back down or something. Is it? It's about 900 and something people, but that doesn't include uh, Bricksworth as well. So the Mercedes team in total is, is approaching 2000 people if you, if you include the engine department, but the cost cap means that they're going to have to put people on different books, I think. So there may be people moving over to applied technologies, for example, um, so people who've been within the team and then maybe they outsource stuff to their applied technologies. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of moving stuff around under headings and in, in the columns in, in your accounting <laughs> going on in the next uh, few years. I feel sorry for Simon Roberts. I think he's done a good job, but I think it's a good thing for Williams to, to streamline everything. And uh, Jost seems to me every decision he's making at the minute is a good decision. And the next one we're waiting for is whether he's going to have George Russell for next year. But time will tell. Although contracts, I say it's been a lay week for Formula One. It's certainly been a quiet one. But there has been a little bit of gossip out there about contracts for next year, specifically Valtteri Bottas versus George Russell. Valtteri wanting the deal sorted before the summer break. Doesn't give him long. No, it doesn't. And you know, when you when you sort of start to look at things like uh, he arrived late at Baku and, and and stuff like that, you, you your little kind of uh, antenna goes off, doesn't it? Lewis's demeanour this year, I think, is of someone who is enjoying it almost more more than ever. He seems much more relaxed. He seems very open. Uh, with us guys, the media, more relaxed and open. I think he's loving the battle with Max Verstappen. Obviously, Baku, not a great one. Hey, how long do you think it took him to get over that Baku mistake? He's done a few Grand Prix, he's won a few races, but that must be one of the hard, hardest errors to get over, mustn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's hugely embarrassing. I mean, but he owned up, didn't he, at the beginning? You know, he did actually say, listen, sorry, guys, sorry, you know. And so Baku seems to be quite famous for people apologising a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems like, yeah, Charles Leclerc going, I am an idiot, I am an idiot. And I can I just say I am an idiot as well? Because I came here fully intending. So if, if people listening are worried about my sound quality, it's not up to the usual standard because I, I, I got all my recording equipment and took it to Sunday and I left the microphone at home. So uh, apologies, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. Um, but anyway, <laughs> you know, mistakes happen. He flicked that switch, didn't he? And actually on the, on the radio recording, um, you can hear it being explained to him by Bono, I think, that, um, that that's what happened. So I don't think, it's, I don't think it was, he didn't forget to turn it off. It, was, it generally was a, just a, one of those rash things that can happen in the heat of the moment. So, but no harm done in a way. I mean, there was a golden opportunity to bag and, a win and get ahead in the championship, but gone. Well, you say no harm done, but that could be very painful at the end of the year, couldn't it? It could. As as Lewis said, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Well, he's just made the marathon a little bit tougher, isn't he? Yes. If Max is going to win the World Championship, it just went one race closer to the end of the championship, didn't it? It moved yeah. all forward. Still very, very tight. Three, was it four points in it? But it's incredible looking at the Constructors' Championship and there is this other team leading the Constructors' Championship, well, some Red Bull team. <laughs> and that's not... I, we're so, it's such a long time since we've seen that. It does make you have a double take, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. You know, we talked about last time and we talked about how I was worried that Mercedes had moved their resources 
on a little bit too soon onto that. I wondered whether that's why they were struggling a bit was that they were focusing on the new regulations and stuff. And I was perusing an old copy of Motorsport magazine and I found this quote from uh, James Allison where he says, uh, the changes are so large, the car is so different that we're going to have to spend a large part of our technical resources during the 21 season in order to make sure that we are ready. Now that was before the season started. Yeah, I think you're not wrong. I think they have switched resources, but I'm sure Red Bull are doing the same, aren't they? I'm not sure. That's my point. I think I think Red Bull would almost like to slip in there while the cat's away, you know, mice is playing while the cats are away, that sort of thing. So what you think, sacrifice 2022 to win this world championship? I think they will assume that if they can continue to develop this car, they will maybe overhaul Mercedes in, in this season. I think this year's car, this Red Bull car this year is a really good car. And Honda have put, a, put everything in, don't forget. They burned up a lot of their credits and, and they've moved forward a lot because there's a fixed engine formula for the end of this year, I think. Basically, what they've got at the, the end of this year lasts them for the next five years. And I think Red Bull have to seize the moment. I'm reminded of 2008 and Sauber BMW. They won the Canadian Grand Prix with Robert Kubica. And then they shifted everything onto the 2009 car, which was the introduction of Kurs and all those complex systems. And poor old Kubica, if you want to wind him up, you go up and ask him about that 2008 World Championship, because even to this day, it riles him. Yes. He says, that was our moment to win the world title. And, and we didn't seize it. That was your interview with Monisha, wasn't it? She explained that. Yeah. yeah. And they, yeah. I think she felt the same, that it was, uh, it was an error. So... Always a problem when you've got a big regulation change. When do you abandon the season you're in? In fact, in most seasons, it's like that. When do you abandon the season you're in and, and just move on to next year? I think the people at the back will just be going. I mean, we know that someone like uh, Haas will be going. <laughs> We've got to get next year's car. Right? Boys, you're going to have to make do with what you've got for the rest of this season. Well, look, shorter term, French Grand Prix this weekend. In fact, this triple header coming up could prove pivotal to the outcome of the World Championship, couldn't it? We've got three races, bang, bang, bang. And uh, if you can win all three, you're going to be sitting pretty, aren't you? And, and it's back to a to a permanent racetrack. Paul Ricard, we didn't race there last year, so there's no current data with these cars, if we're going to argue that the cars are the same as last year or, or near enough. So can Merck get it back on track so to speak yeah i think this is this is a crucial part of the championship i do i always think that the opening few races throw up unexpected results while people are still you know they still haven't quite packed their bags properly you know and, and eventually they settle in and they've had a, they've had a they've had this break between backers so they've had a chance i think one of the reasons there's not been much news is because everyone's been catching their breath i'm sure you've been doing the same going back to some sort of normal life just because they know they're going to have to take a deep long deep breath and, and get stuck into the, the onslaught that is coming their way of three back-to-back races, non-stop competition. So it's great for us, but hard work for you guys. Well, you do feel like you're, you're on the treadmill, as you say. I mean, the thing is, though, Paul Ricard, we unfortunately didn't have a great race back in 2019, did we? But I think we're going to see Merck pretty strong again. I think that's a good car, isn't it? And I can't see Lewis Hamilton not being... A serious challenge to Max Verstappen. Yeah, I think they probably secretly think that themselves, but they they, they least have brought some strength to their their challenge. I think there's a there's a strong challenge, stronger than we've ever seen before. And we don't know still what Ferrari have got up their sleeve. They they found something, 
and they are, you know, they've got potential to make some progress and, and interfere with things. So good, good racing coming up. Good racing coming up. And uh, hey, whatever kind of race we get on Sunday, Damon, I will be enjoying myself at Paul Ricard because it is one of the most beautiful bits of France, isn't it? Have you spent much time there? Um, I spent much of my uh, very early days with Williams there because of Renault. They had a garage uh, on the back straight, on the on the on the Molsan straight, uh, Molsan. Sorry, the, the, not the Molsan, the, Molsan the Mistral. Uh, yeah, the Molsan. We're getting from a blue French tracks <laughs> model up. Um, so the Mistral straight. Yeah, and it was just before scenes, and it's their facility. And so my job was to go and well, I could be forgiven for thinking my job was to go and blow up engines because I did do a lot of that. And they'd send me out at about sort of six o'clock. This is winter testing, don't forget. So it got dark about sort of five o'clock or something. And they'd go, can we just do one more run? I'd go out in the dark and then this engine would blow up and it would light up the whole of Paul Ricard. And I'd be sitting there kind of in this <laughs> fantastic orange glow um, with flames pouring out of the back of the car. Uh, and it was spectacular as well because we had those titanium skid plates on the front end, the wing end plates. And it was literally, I was, I was like I was in a, inside a firework when I was going around the track. It was just brilliant um, when it was dark. One thing that brought me was I discovered Roquefort cheese for Ricard <laughs> because the French, um, the Renault team always put out a good spread, you know, whereas it, the British, British, um, you know, uh, fare is usually penguin biscuits and a cup of tea and maybe a bit of Battenberg cake. They had the whole lot. They had, you know, had ham, <laughs> they had cheeses, they had really good food. You had to take that hour for lunch, which is why you ran so late into the evening, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they never stopped working. There, and that, that's why we had such a lot of success. The engine was incredible. That Renault engine was fantastic. How many iterations of that Renault engine would you have had back then? Because let's remind people that Today, what is it? Three engines for the whole season, 23 races. How many times were you trying something new back then? All the time. That was my job. I was a, I was a test driver. So every time I, I went out, they'd give me another 50 RPM or something like that, or 100, you know, 50, 10 horsepower, another 10 horsepower. It's incredible how you can feel these small changes. And, the, and it would just, the engine would just be constantly growing and evolving bit by bit. So it was, it was fun for me. It was great fun. So this was what, 1992? Two, yes, that's right. Yeah. 19, yeah, putting the hard yards in for Nigel Mansell's World Championship. Did Nigel give you much praise? Would he thank you when you saw him? I'd love to know the relationship between the test driver and, and the race driver. Well, he did call me the monkey one day. I was the test monkey, but he's never said anything other than positive things, Nigel, about me. He's been very generous, very supportive. But it was great being in a team with him. You know, he'd turn up, he'd absolutely destroy the car you know get every last drop out of it and it would come back and he'd be steaming and the car be steaming and he'd go oh you know it was quite good that you know i think he's he's made a bit of progress we need to work harder though you know oh sorry i, I, <laughs> I just realized our, our producer our editor is actually from the midlands and she's giggling away i can see her likes my accent that's good <laughs> so um yeah so that's that's my my Nigel Mansell impression but he's always he was a lot of fun that's a nice insight into into Paul Ricard um so we've we've covered Mercedes and Red Bull you mentioned Ferrari uh thinking they found something they've what they've now got a couple of points ahead of McLaren in the constructors haven't they I think they were flattered by Charles Pole lap last time out in Baku he got a mega toe from Lewis didn't he yeah 
Yeah, he did. And you only need six, six tenths, you know, and you were jumped up about 10 places yeah. on the grid, didn't you? I mean, he said coming into that weekend, look, we're going to be back to normal here. And I think it was an anomaly, wasn't it, what happened there? And I think we're going to see. But it is going to be real tooth and nail between Ferrari and McLaren. And both Ferrari drivers doing a great job, aren't they? Carlos Sainz and, and Charles Leclerc. Yeah. Bit of a heads up warning, though. I think I feel we ought to flag this up before we get to Paul Ricard. It's that it's such an aero circuit. And we did have one of the boringest races in the history of Formula One um, a few years back, didn't we, uh, Paul Ricard? I'm worried that, you know, it's difficult to get around these things. So the new regulations were designed to make cars race raceable between each other. So I'm hoping that we don't get repeat of that last race, but I think the competition is close enough now that uh, Mercedes won't just walk into the distance. Joe, you know, one of my sad, biggest sadnesses about the the layout because what there's something there's hundreds of different layouts at Paul Ricard, aren't they? And the one they've chosen for the Grand Prix has that uh, chicane, doesn't it? Halfway down the uh, what do we call it? Are we calling it the Mulsat? No, we're not. We're calling it the the the, 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 the long the long back straight. <laughs> the other word for it. <laughs> And can you imagine though, without that chicane, without how chicane. fast they'd be through Why don't that they right do hand? That? that would be brilliant. That would be a two hundred and twenty mile an hour corner at the other end. Well, what was it like in your day? Um, it, well, we didn't use the long. I used the short circuit, so I never went down the full length of that straight. So, oh, okay. but they did do in the in the days gone by. But a friend of mine, um, actually my golf coach, went to the French uh, Grand Prix, and he was standing at scenes and sent some um, phone video footage of it back there. It's absolutely brilliant place to watch. Because the cars are great through there, yeah. So fast, isn't it? And the corner after that was a neck. So I did my first ever Formula One test at Paul Ricard in a Benetton Ford in 1980, 1988, yeah. Hang on. I don't think many people know that. No, How did that opportunity come about? Um, I think I just persistence and, and I annoyed the hell out of them eventually got, I, t- I can't remember that, to be honest. I, think it was, I can't remember why I was doing it, but I got, I got the opportunity. Maybe it was Cellnet or something that did it. Was it Peter Collins? Peter Collins in charge? Peter right? Collins, yes. And so I got this, I got 20 laps or something. And after about three laps, my head had fallen off. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was so, that second corner after scenes is a closing radius tightening radius like a snail it goes in really fast and gets gets tighter and tighter and tighter and you're trying to break at the same time and the strain on your neck is huge and these guys in these modern f1 cars the the gilos are huge so that is a a real pain in the neck literally at that corner when you're preparing for your first ever f1 test big opportunity you know the forces are going to be higher how much work do you do on your neck I, I always approach things, Tom, from the point of view that I am going to be exposed. I'm going to be found out for every little weakness. And I always thought I had loads of uh, weak spots. So I worked really hard on them. I had a helmet with bolts on with massive, great big weights on it. And I would literally watch TV with my head lying on the floor with my head off the ground doing neck exercises. So I didn't get any neck problems after that first experience in the, in the F1 car. It basically said, look, you, you can't show what you can do unless you actually build up your neck muscles because you simply can't drive. Your head turns away. So you're looking out of one eye because your head can't, you can't get your head to turn towards the apex. So you literally, your head is going and turning away from the apex. So it, uh, there was no way of showing what I could do as a driver because my neck wasn't strong enough. So, you know, dry, those sort of experiences were valuable because it made you realize, oh my God. I mean, when you look at someone like Alan Prost, he's, he's, not, he's not a big lad. You know, Nigel Mansell, you can understand, but some of the skinnier drivers, 
I was. It's astonishing how they how fit they were. But Alan's got a. He has got a very thick neck, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got. I've got a long neck. I'm a, I'm giraffe like person. So um, he's got. That must a, have been worse for you then. Did that make it? Yeah, harder? I think that. Well, it must do. It's longer. You know, it's more leverage. So you know, people like Esteban Ocon and 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 so forth. They, you know, anyone with kind of a big gap between the shoulders and the head, he's got more of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is still a brilliant corner, that long right-hander that you're talking about. Uh, now, look, Ferrari, we've mentioned, McLaren, Lando Norris doing an amazing job. Is this the place, DH, that we're going to see Daniel Ricciardo hit true form, the old DR that we know? Yeah, I mean, Daniel Ricciardo's actually been qualifying a bit better recently, hasn't he? Um, so I think he's finding some pace, but uh, we, you know, of all of the guys who switch teams, he seems to be the one suffering the most, isn't he? And I don't know whether that's Lando upping his game or whether it's uh, Danny not getting to grips with the handling on the car. But um, it's an opportunity. I mean, this this circuit is like a, almost like a billiard table. It's not like many other circuits out there. It's very smooth. Aero will will be the most important. So just getting a balance, an aero balance on the car. It might not be the hustly kind of track that, that Danny likes. You could get stuck within the bounds of the car, if that makes any sense to you, you know, sometimes you just can only go as fast as the car will, will go because other times you can use a bit of flair to overcome deficiencies in the car. But if there's no deficiencies, you're stuck. You know what I was saying earlier about Lewis being so comfortable with the media? He's just, he, he strikes me as someone in a really good place this year, mentally. Daniel Ricciardo, less so in that he... You know, Mr. Extrovert, he'd come into any press conference and crack a few gags before mm. we kicked off, all that kind of thing. We're seeing none of that. No. Well, it's it's more noticeable, isn't it, Tom? Because, you know, it's a bigger drop off with someone like Danny, who, who was very up and someone who liked to play up to the camera and so forth. And, and uh, I, I don't know. Listen, it's too early to call Danny Ricardo having a problem. Um, I think that. It may be that Lando is a tougher nut than he, than he expected. He may have underestimated it. He's just going to have to get used to that. Damon, I was going to ask you about Alpine, but let's hold our horses because we've got their ambassador in the waiting room, Monsieur Alain Prost. Should we let him in? I, I think we should. Tom, we've got to let him in. He's, he's my teammate from 1993 and he's won four world championships. You can't keep him waiting. Ah, bonjour. Hey. Bonjour, Alain. Hello, Tom. You've been, you've been training, haven't you? you? I can see you've been out on a bike or something, haven't you? Yeah, I was on the, I was on the bike. I took the shower, but I, it's very warm, so it's, uh, it's still a little bit wet. Alain, where in the world are you at the minute? In Provence. You know, I have a house in Provence, close to uh, Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. And it's, oh. uh, it's very nice. Uh, it's very close to Paricard. It's such a joy to have you and Damon together. And I'm immediately reminded of 1993, your last season in Formula One. Damon's first, really. He'd done a few races before that, but first proper season. I mean, what were you expecting from each other ahead of 93? This should be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, it's, it was very clear at the time. And uh, it's still very clear today, um, 93 is almost 30 years uh, later. I signed a contract, in fact, with Frank, I think it was uh, January or February. That was very early in the uh, 92 season. At the time, I didn't know 
who I was going to have as a teammate. It was uh, 80% sure, as I understood that it would, would be Devon, but not completely sure. And uh, the only thing I asked in my contract, everybody knows now, we did not know at the time, that uh, I did not ask for a number one position, but the only restriction, only thing I ask is, uh, I said to Frank, I'm ready to fight against Ayrton, but not in the same team anymore. So that's the only thing I want to be written in, in the contract. So when, when I arrived there with Damon, uh, I mean, the first thing I must say, that was already very difficult for me when I, uh, I stopped for only about six months or seven months driving a car. Uh, but when I came back in Portugal, I was really, um, I asked myself why I came back. Uh, that was uh, a shock. Uh, physically, mentally, it's like if I was, uh, I stopped Formula One for really uh, more, more than uh, six months or one year. And with, with Demon, obviously, I had the experience. He was uh, much younger, I mean, you were much younger, but you had a better experience of the active car. You, you test for more than one year in the active car, yeah. more than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'd had a, a whole year of testing with the car and, and working on its development. So I did have the upper hand. Alan, I've got a question. And that is that after 1992, you'd spent six months on the beach or whatever you were doing no 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 not true <laughs> <laughs> not true okay well hey what no, did no. you do during 92 in fact in 92 that was a, a fantastic year in fact because obviously i did not add the pressure i signed a contract very early in the year so i didn't I, I could concentrate i knew in january february i don't remember that i was racing for the williams Rado team in 93 so I was also doing all the races, if you remember, I was commentating the, the races on TV, on the French TV. And uh, I wanted to be fit. So I was playing golf at the time, a lot. Then I have discovered the bikes. So I was doing a lot of fitness, a lot of uh, training, and I was running every day, you know, at the time. But then I started to have a, a, a knee problem. Uh, and then I went to the bike for the first time, 92. And then I, I discovered a passion, you know. And at the end, uh, in the middle of the year, I stopped playing golf and I continued uh, um, uh, cycling. And that's why the year after in 93, even when I was racing, uh, I participated for the first time at the stage of the Tour de France, you know, the amateur uh, stage of Tour de France. I've done, I think, uh, 15 or 20 uh, since then. And, um, and the, yeah, I, I was really, really fit. But that means... It's a good question, but I'm going to say something that uh, I'm not going to surprise you. I was unbelievable fit. I had 5% of uh, uh, grease you know, on, on my body. Yeah, body fat, yeah. Yeah, body fat. But when I came to the, in September with a really uh, a fit condition to the Formula 1, I felt completely lost. So that means every, everything you do outside is important, but is not as important than all the work you do inside Formula One, all the muscles that you're training, there are different muscles, you know, and uh, all the physiology, you know, for the, the, also the vision and everything, you cannot train that outside. So Damon, what were you doing while Alan was doing all this cycling and the golf and, and whatever else? What was your go-to fitness? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I knew how physical these cars were. And when Alan joined, I thought, he's had some time off. He's only a little chap. I'm going to have him. I'm gonna, there's no way. This guy can beat me. He's too small. He's not enough, not enough muscle. Nigel was, he's a gorilla. 
he has the small steering wheel. You're a light touch driver, I think. Alan taught me that the finesse that Alan has as a driver is second to none. I mean, you're talking Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, you know, Jensen Button also is a smooth driver, but Alain, his style is fantastic. So they literally put smaller brakes on because he wasn't using the big brakes. He wasn't pushing the pedal like a gorilla, uh, you know, and abusing the car in any way. He was very efficient when he had turned up. And so this is where Alain's talent really is exceptional. And that's where I had to work hard to, to try and to be competitive in any way with, with Alain. But, you know, it made me think, what is Fernando Alonso having been away? How hard has it been for him to get back up to speed? Because I've heard him mention that it's, he still has a little bit more to come back, yeah? Yeah. I mean, we, I talked with Fernando in, uh, last year before he started about that. Because I always remember when I came back, you know, after only six months, I, I know how difficult, especially I was lucky that I could test the cars from September. So I've done many, I don't know many, but a few testing sessions at the time. And for him, it was only one day and a half on the, on the car, except with the, with the old car. So I'm not surprised that uh, he needs to have uh, time. But uh, not only knowing the car and all the systems, because that is more complex than what we had in, uh, in the past, it's much more complex because what we were saying be before, it's not the same job, but they have to, to learn and they have to uh, interpret all, everything. They have to listen to what we are saying to them. It, it, it takes time, you know, and the simulator is good, but uh, it's more inside the, inside the car. And the physical condition and the what we call more the, the physiology, you know, that means the stomach, you know, the, the, the old, old body and the vision, the head. And, the, and don't forget that he had also the bike accident. So you, you, you don't know how the effect that it could have. So I was a little bit worried. So he's getting better and, uh, and better, but it's still, still not completely at the, at the top, in my opinion. He knows that. We, we expect that the French Grand Prix, where it's a different track, you know, wider, so the track he knows well. So we see, but it's, I'm not surprised that it takes, uh, it takes a little bit of time. Alain, you say he's got a little bit more to find, but what has impressed you the most about Fernando Alonso? What has always impressed me the most is the, a little bit like Michael, that they are passionate by uh, racing, <laughs> uh, you know, and they, and they never stop. That means uh, when Fernando is not, uh, you know, on the track and he goes and go kart and obviously he has done many different things like endurance or Dakar or whatever, but they need to to drive. Which I never, I've, I've done a few other things like Andros Trophy, but um, also because it was completely different. But they are at a different level. And um, now today, what surprised me also that. Uh, Fernando is really professional. He's really honest with uh, himself and everybody. He's really, really good for the team. It's not a secret that you can always be a little bit worried about what happened with Fernando and, and uh, the other teams. And that's not the case today. He's very, very good. You know, so it's a uh, it's big surprise, but a good, a good surprise for us. He's a very, very nice guy. Very nice. We've got to acknowledge the fact this is the biggest week for the only French world champion is four times world champion. And uh, it's, it's a huge week, isn't it? You're back. We got the French Grand Prix. You won it six times. And do you have extra duties this weekend being the, the big representative? 
it has always been a, a special uh, week, a special uh, weekend for me. Obviously, now with the COVID, and uh, you have less. We always have, uh, for example, this week, I have different functions. I have uh, shooting to do. And I have, uh, you always have official dinner on Saturday. You have, you have more things. But not because of my position of uh, being world champion. It's mainly because it's part of my team and my duty to the, to the Renault brand and, and Alpine now. But we, you are obviously much closer. You can have maybe with a, with a, a British Grand Prix, you know, much closer to your organization, to the political uh, people, because it's a, it's a big event. You know, it's not only for Mana One, also for the economy. And it has to be good because the first year was not perfect. So it has to be good this year. We are going to have less less people, but uh, yeah, it's a mix of the sport and the human side with the French drivers and uh, myself. I'm 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 seen like uh, the old uh, racing driver being a champion, but trying to help also the the whole Formula One uh, world to be more successful. Just on the subject of Alpine, do you guys have everything you need to succeed in Formula One? Let me answer honestly. I don't think we need it. Every, we, we didn't have everything when we should have had it. That means more two, three years ago, between, between four years ago, three years ago, two years ago. <laughs> you understand? That means that all the effort you should have done, investment and uh, recruitment, maybe not at the right um, timing. Now we have good bears. We cannot show it very well because of the COVID system. So we had to postpone one year the new car and obviously the new engine is going to be very different. And uh, But we, we have the, the good base. And uh, in terms of uh, finance, if you're talking also about finance with the budget cap that we are going to be in a better position. But if you ask me an honest answer, all the investment that you are doing and uh, when you when you have uh, 700 people on the chassis side and they have 1,000, 1,000 or 1,200, whatever, for many, many years with a huge uh, investment, it's not going to change uh, completely in one year. But we are going to be uh, much better next year, that's for sure. That is that is the target. And but this year is going to be to be difficult. You, you never have enough in Formula 1. Uh, but on the other side, uh, history has proved also that when you have uh, too much, it does not mean that you have uh, you have success. You know, so it's a compromise. And uh, I hope that we can show next year that the compromise is uh, is good. <laughs> that is that is the target. Brilliant. And I see on the shelf behind you, Alain, that you've got your helmet from what looks like eighty four, eighty five, maybe. I even don't know. I think 84 or 85. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it makes me think of Mansour Auger, who oh, yeah. very sadly passed away 10 days ago. What's your best memory of Mansour? You know, I was um, more than sad about his loss because uh, it is one of the, the best uh, person I met, not only in racing. Everybody is talking about racing, but I... I, I met the first time uh, Mansu in 1980 at Long Beach. That was my my second race. I, was, I had a broken wrist. And we, we stayed friends forever. That means 40 years of friendship. You see, we had the history of McLaren. But with Mansu, we, uh, that, that was an unbelievable person. Uh, 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 personality was so nice and, uh, I mean... Perfect that you you don't you don't meet people like this in your life very very often. 
but for me, it is also the best years of my life, best years of my life from far. That means, you know, success, friendship, and fun. What else do you want to have? And we never had a rest, you know, without having a nice dinner or a party, losing or winning. And uh, we had holidays together. We had, uh, you know, in the summer and winter. And, uh, you know, that was the time where you could be professional in a bad way and having a lot of fun. And you, you, you could mix the two, you know, uh, also with, with intelligent person like Mansu. That was absolutely unbelievable. That was I, his loss is a little bit of my, you know, with Nikki. Uh, and, uh, and now Mansu is, a, you know, it's a sort of a, a part of my life. I mean, after I turned obviously 20 years ago, but that was different. You know, it was a different feeling. Very sad. Although I love the idea of being professional in a bad way. Yes, because when I, when I say the bad way, because it's a, you know, you could be professional in a, in a very intense way. The bad way is intense, and having fun the the minute after, or or mix the the fun sometimes with the, with the work, you know. But you you always had in mind to win and win and win, but. Uh, not being completely crazy about that. You know, I, I read a, a quote from Nikki that I never, I never seen before because I always share that. Was seeing at this time in the seventies or between seventeen and eighties, we were having a lot of fun because we were dying a lot. You know, and uh, it was a little bit for me. It was a little bit different. But you remember, we had a lot of accident, a lot of friends with were killed or, 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 or injured. And uh, we always had the fun part, very important in our life. And Mansoor was part of it. But on the other side, he has done unbelievable things that he has invested uh, with uh, his tag in the Porsche engine. And we were, uh, I, I was twice a champion with that. So he was also a visionaire. He has made McLaren's big, uh, big companies in the world. So it's always, uh, as I said, always a mix that is important. Can we look at the battle at the front this year between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton? Alain, how do you see the, the strengths and weaknesses of each of those two drivers? And, and who do you think will prevail? Who do you think will win ultimately? I think it's difficult to say who's going to win. But the first thing is uh, it's going to be a nice battle. Uh, I, I can see that as, a, as an overall picture from outside. Uh, I think uh, Red Bull and uh, Max are in, uh, in a better shape in my opinion, today. But it's always a long season that I can reverse uh, differently. But uh, for one or two reasons, first of all, Sergio Perez is, is starting to do a good job, so it's, it's going to be a big help. I don't think it's going to be a strength but for, for Red Bull, but more a help. Uh, Valtteri is not, uh, psychologically, it's a very difficult situation. I must say that I, I, I like uh, Valtteri as, as a person and it must be quite tough, you know, to be in a, in a trip like this. But you could see that the psychology of the teams, before you had a very nervous Red Bull team and very, uh, you know, up and down. And now you could see that some uh, different things at Mercedes, um, some small mistakes, some uh, misunderstandings, some uh, very nervous reaction from Toto, for example, that they could never see that before. So the things can change, you know, and that can make the difference, in my opinion, during the year. It occurred to me listening to you just then when we're talking about the two teams, Red Bull and Mercedes, if you've got Alpine, which direction, because they're slightly different management styles, 
race styles. Which direction do you see would you want to pursue? Would you like to model yourself more on Mercedes or on Red Bull? I mean, Red Bull looks to be a little bit, a little bit better. So I, I would follow more the Red Bull uh, because also in Formula One, as you know, Damon, you have a sort of snowball and the positive synergy and whatever. Looks Mercedes has a little bit more uh, problems sometimes for the tires and depending on the tracks, as we could see in Baku and Monaco, Red Bull seems to be a little bit more more consistent. So they have to follow this route. I think Max has to accept sometimes maybe a second position, you know, depending on the... He's not very, not very lucky in a way, sometimes. <laughs> and uh, the champion has always luck. And Lewis was exceptional in the last few years. And even the first races of this year was absolutely exceptional. That brings luck to, to that. Sometimes it can change if they do if they start to do the right job everywhere, like they do at the moment, more or less. Then the, the luck could uh, could turn up, and that can make the difference. I don't think I would change very much the, their philosophy at the moment at Red Bull. On drivers, you know, often we compare drivers from different eras. How, how do you see Lewis fitting into comparing to? Obviously, the great names like yourself and Fan Joe and all of these drivers that people mention, you know, compared to Michael, how do you see Lewis? I, I never compare the drivers. I've never done that for 40 years, so I'm not going to start comparing the drivers. I can, I can just say that uh, what Lewis is doing is uh, like the top drivers, if you want, you know, if you can include uh, three, four, five or ten, I don't know, but... Uh, He's exceptional also because of the, the motivation. He still gets motivation quite high. I can understand this year is very important for him because it's the year that he could overtake, uh, you know, Michael. But uh, what he has showed at the beginning of the year was really uh, something to prove that he's one of the best. If you, if you compare, for example, Max and Lewis, it's very difficult to compare a driver who is, uh, who is trying to get the first championship compared to what uh, a guy that he knows how to uh, prepare his race and uh, manage his season. Look at what happened yesterday with uh, with uh, Djokovic and uh, Tsitsipas. You know, it's the first time you can uh, get a, a grand stem. It's very difficult in terms of pressure. As soon as Max will win a championship, I think it can be a, a fantastic driver. But Lewis is a very complete driver. He, he has all the all the tools. You know, he's unbelievable. Question to both of you champions. When were you at your peak, both of you? I mean, I uh, fitness thing, I, I remember training and going, when I was 36, I seemed to be training just as hard and then, and then uh, losing my fitness more quickly, you know? So there's a fitness thing, but then there's experience that compensates. Which was your best season? My best races was when I was 34. So 30, I think F1 drivers are their best when they're about 32, 33. There's still the youth daring and the talent, and then there's the experience. So maybe up to 36, maybe. That would put Alan Prost slightly past his best when I was racing against him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think I was, I was 38 when I was racing against you. I think my best year in terms of how uh, I felt myself the best ever was 1990 with the Ferrari. I don't think I was at my best in 93 for reasons that you know, Damon, but more uh, psychologically rather than uh, physically or whatever. You know, I was really at the top phys physically. I stopped in 93, but in 95, when I was testing at McLaren, if you remember, I was able to do the best time in private testing in, in front of everybody in, uh, with, with the McLaren. So 
I could still do it. Uh, we had a discussion with Mansu at the time after this session about coming back. And I said to him, you know, I was tempted, you know, because you always have a, a sort of, okay, I'm still quick, I'm still fast, and you can still do it. But being fast in a private test with nobody, with no pressure, and uh, going back to the complete season with all the things, I mean, it's completely different. So sometimes you think you are at the top, but you cannot deliver the 100% thing uh, because it's, it's in your head and your stomach. Alain, what kind of teammate was Damon? Did he? Oh, Tom, you play... can't ask him that. Did he? Did he? Oh, no. <laughs> did he play any any funny business? Was Damon into any of the sort of not sharing data or anything like that? <laughs> no, it was. Uh, you know, I had uh, many teammates. In all the teammates I had, even after the first year, eighty eight, eighty nine was a completely different season. But uh, I always had good friendship in a way. I mean, more, more or less. Only two were not good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, no, no. no Damon, Damon, Damon was a gentleman. It was very nice and uh, without any problem. Very calm. And uh, I like Damon's personality. I can tell him like this. You know, it's, uh, it's also the history of Formula One in a way because I was a, a big fan of his father. And you, you can see that you have the, the sort in, in uh, what say the gen, you know, the inside you, you know, the flag. And I remember you when you broke the engine in '93 in uh, in uh, at Silverstone, you know, for the. I was I was very sad for you, you know, in a way. So oh, you, come on, Alan. When when your engine blew up in Monza, I can't yeah. honestly say I was unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's move on to the next bit of the show. It is, hey, it's my favourite bit of the show, and I know it's yours, Damon. It's Ask Damon Hill. Oh, great. Let's hear him. Come on. Okay, come on then. First question. Hey, Damon. This is Sean in Thailand. A few episodes ago, you talked about your love for music and playing the guitar. Now, although I'm only 29 years old, my favourite guitarist of all time is someone I know you had a very close relationship with when he was alive. I'm talking about George Harrison, and I was really hoping you could share an anecdote of your time with George when you were racing. I know George was also a big racing fan, and it would be great to hear that. Thanks so much for your work, guys. Very entertaining and informative. Love it. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Sean. Absolutely brilliant uh, yeah, question, because I've got some fantastic memories. We, I don't think we've got time for one. I mean, Alain, did you, did you ever meet uh, George Harrison? I think you must have, because he was a big fan of Formula One. He was part of Formula One of the 80s. He was coming to, to in our team at McLaren. I don't know. We have been there for 20 times, you know, so a lot. We, we were really good, good friends, yeah. You, I mean, you probably don't know this, but um, he came um, from Liverpool and they used to have the British Grand Prix at Aintree, which is in Liverpool. That's where he got his love uh, for motor racing because he used to go in and sneak into the track and go and uh, get, get okay. free. I didn't know. fantastic so he he was a long time fan of motor racing before he was a Beatle a bit like me I wanted to be a guitarist but I was not a very good guitarist he wanted to be a racing driver he wasn't a very good driver yeah (laughs) that's good but I'll tell you a funny story about um, about George because you know autographs are very difficult uh, you know at parts of the life sometimes we're we're trying to get things trying to leave the circuit and there's you have to sign autographs and everything and George was uh, in Australia 
and we were trying to leave the circuit and he was, we had a car there waiting and he said, come on, let's get in the car. And I'm going, I'm signing the autographs and he's saying, come on, Damon, get in the car. So George Harrison said, <laughs> he said, oh, sorry, no more autographs after 5.30. Yeah. And then they stopped, they stopped asking for autographs. And he was obviously had a lot of experience with fans. Fantastic. He was a nice, nice man, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Let's have our second and final question now. This one from Brooks. Hello, Damon. It seems to me that there's a lot of quality up and down the grid this year. So I'd like you to put yourself in the role of a team principal for a moment and construct a super team of two drivers, one chassis, and one engine based on the results that you've seen so far this season. Now, here's the caveat. You can only pick one element from each team on the grid. For example, if you take Lewis as a driver, you can't pick Valtteri as a second driver, nor can you use the Mercedes chassis or engine. Similarly, if the Mercedes is your engine of choice, you can't take any driver or chassis that uses the Mercedes engine. Thanks. Brooks, what an absolutely fascinating question. And we've got just the man here to answer. Yeah, no, no, answer. You answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's your question to you. <laughs> I know you're not a team principal, Alain, but no. it was, what an int- it's a fascinating idea, right? don't you think? I mean, maybe we should make that a rule in, in the sport. Yeah, it's too complicated. But for sure, for sure, in the sport, you would like to see, uh, you know, for example, uh, Lewis in the Red Bull and uh, Mike's in the Mercedes or whatever, or changing uh, that. We know that it's not it's not possible. I don't know what to to say. I mean, what, what you what what you would put in a, together as a teammate for a, two two teammates? Do you put Max and, and Lewis, for example, together? If you are if you are yes. team Yes, Alain. Yes. Imagine that. It's a question to not to uh, to them. No, but the, you know what the interesting thing is now that you can't choose something else from uh, Mercedes. So we'll have to have a. Alpine engine, I think, maybe. And, uh, well, no, the chassis is quite good. I, I, something's coming with the, the Alpine car. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could have, if you can't have something else from Mercedes, you can have something from Aston Martin because that's almost like a Mercedes, isn't it? No, exactly, yeah. No, it's, a, it's all, uh, always a difficult uh, question and answer. Obviously, the, for example, the Honda engine is very, uh, very narrow. They made a big improvement. So, so you would say, okay, today to make uh, the best car possible, you would like to have the Honda engine. In terms of power, is not that different, Mercedes and Honda, and uh, maybe still a little bit better in uh, Mercedes. It's very difficult to in qualifying is one thing in terms of top and power, but also in doing in the rest, in terms of the way you use the engine also for the you know the for the energy is there are also some differences. Very difficult to do what the the, the question was in fact you know because uh, sometimes you could put an engine to uh, on another car. I mean for sure if you put the Mercedes engine in our car is going to be better because of the structure. That's what we are going to do next year, a completely different structure to make the I.O. also much better. But um, having said that, uh, I don't know if I would put in the modern Formula 1 the best two drivers in the same team. That is the big question, depending if you have a a competition in front of you. That means if you have a a team uh, very close, then uh, the big chance that having the two top drivers in the same team makes you the losing team at the end of the year. That's unfortunately, unfortunately the case today. I've come up with my super team. I think we go Fernando and Lewis as the drivers. McLaren chassis, Honda engine. That's a winner. That's a good combination, that. Well done. But you can't have uh, Fernando because Alain Prost has got him. It's no good. (laughs) I can sell it. It's very very expensive. Alan, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time and brilliant to get 
you two teammates together. So thanks for that. And uh, look forward to seeing you at Paul Ricard. Always nice. We do it. We do it. We do that sometimes. Yeah, thank you very much. Huh? Love to do it again. Très bien. Très bien. Merci. Thanks to you. Bye. You too. Merci, Alain. Merci. So that was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed for those perceptive and also probing questions that uh, put me in uh, the spotlight, like in Mastermind, uh, when I have to answer these really difficult questions. So it makes me think that I like that a lot. So thank you very much for that. And if anyone else listening to today's show has got any other questions they want to ask me, they're very welcome to on a audio recording. So record your voice and send it to askdamonhill at gmail.com and we will perhaps play it in the next episode. Fantastic to hear from Le Professeur, wasn't it? Really cool. Before we go, DH, any other business? Anything else you haven't told us? Well, I think I'm fairly frank with you, Tom. I don't think there's anything I'm hiding. I've been out um, doing a few bits and bobs, driving an E-Type Jag. Did I tell you Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, you didn't tell us about that. So you're not being frank. Who's E-Type? Tell us. E-Type Jag. Oh, I love them. So the story of the E-Type Jag, they, when we were young, they, we used to make jokes like, what's yellow and fast? And E-Type banana. So E-Type meant fast, you know? So that's, it was the car that just exploded onto the scene. It was a British fast sports car. And it's a beautiful thing, of course. And my dad won the first ever race in an E-Type in 1961. And they asked me if I wanted to drive it. The actual car? The actual car. And it belongs to a guy called Sir Paul Vesti. And he made it available for me to do some filming at Silverstone. So I got to drive it. And it was a beautiful, lovely day and had the roof down. And I felt like, um, I felt like Michael Caine in the Italian job. It's uh, brilliant. Wow, that sounds amazing. Where were you driving it? Uh, at Silverstone. I was, I, yeah. But I went out in my electric car and I had an absolute nightmare getting back because I didn't have enough charge. Oh, no, range anxiety. <laughs> no, we won't, we, yeah, we won't go into that long. It sounds an amazing thing, by the way, to drive your dad's, the actual car from Alton Park. Um, yeah. But did you hear a story about five years ago that Bernie, Bernie Ecclestone, was buying every E-type Jag that he could get his hands on because he wanted to start manipulating the market and increase the value of E-type Jags. Did you hear that? He probably had them crushed, so there was only one left. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and this private collector who owns your dad's car maybe bought it. But anyway, that was a, a, a Bernie story I heard about the E-type Jag. Is it quick, by the way? Did it feel um, quick? It's quite quick, yeah. It's, uh, it's quite, it gets up and goes, and it's got quite a lot of grip as well. I was quite surprised. But... Um, it rolls a lot. It's got a huge steering wheel, lovely wooden steering wheel, but it's got, it's quite heavy. It's like driving a truck. You know, you literally, you need the big steering wheel to put some leverage on. Then when you turn the wheel, instead of the car turning, it just rolls over, you know? So the first thing it does is feels, feels like it's going to fall over and then it starts to drift and it's a lovely, lovely way to drive. It's not our way, you know, an F1 way. They got rid of all that movement a long time ago with minimal suspension movement, but um, you have to drift. So nice to get out there and, and sit and have a go in, in the car that my dad had a victory in, which was actually before, I think it was before he won a, a Grand Prix as well. So he, it was probably more famous for winning that at that time than he was for, for Formula One. Sounds amazing. And when you say it's your dad's original car, I always wonder with these historic cars, how much of them is original is it like the actual steering wheel are they the actual pedals that your dad's feet were dancing over or or is it new are they new is it new metal not the same metal i think they do a test there's a test which is the bodywork the chassis the engine 
and then the the suspension you know it's a bit like you know the ship of theseus don't you that thing what they keep replacing every year they replace a new bit because it's it's rotten and eventually have to say well when is it no longer the ship of theseus you never know but these things have been damaged you know they race them people race them they damage them and then they replace the bodywork and then after a bit they have to replace bits of corroded or bearings and stuff they race them hard too don't they places like the goodwood revival oh yeah no they're, they're very committed these people they they, they like to see their cars raced as well. So the owners like to see them race because they go up in value because if they can get... <laughs> as long as someone else pranged. <laughs> well, uh, well, I mean, I drove, I drove uh, Nick, Nick Mason's Ferrari uh, 250 GTO, oh, um, gosh, which is worth... That? Yeah, what? How much? 25 million or something. I don't know. It was a lot of money. And um, uh, it may be more than that now. I don't know. But I was supposed to share it with him and I was putting the car first and I stupidly lost control of it and put it in the gravel. <laughs> so, so he never got to race it in that particular race, which was the TT race at Goodwood, uh, historic thing. And I came out, I said, oh, I'm really sorry, Nick. And he said, don't worry, it's worth more now. Are you driven it? So <laughs> I said, you haven't seen it, mate. You're, you know, <laughs> but um, so anyway, yeah, old, old classic cars, they, they are, um, they're, if they're bought wisely, they can be a fantastic investment. And they like to see them race, which is great because they're much better than being just looked at in a museum, I think. It's nice to see these old cars out. I'm supposed to drive my FW18, but they can't get them. This is the problem with the modern F1 cars is rebuilding V10, Renault V10 from 1996 is so expensive. They're very hard to get them to run again. Who, who owns that? That was a Williams car, that one. So that's owned by, by Williams themselves. It sounds like you've had a lot of fun. I'm sorry I'm not going to see you at Paul Ricard, but we haven't got long to wait till you come to a race again. Yeah, just enjoy the Rockfort and uh, some glass yeah. and, <laughs> and a nice red wine. I'm going to go looking for your old Renault garage halfway down the, the Mistral Strait. They might have bulldozed it by now, I think. <laughs> it might still be there, I'm not sure. But um... Well, DH... I better go to the airport. You better get to that first tee. Yeah. Good luck. I will be thinking of you, Tom. I think that's the end of the show. Yeah. It's a lovely show, Tom. It's been great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. We get Natalie back next time as well, don't we? Yeah. Getting the band back together for our post-French Grand Prix episodes. That'll be great. But for now, let's end it. Well, that was uh, F1 Nation... (laughs) you've been listening to I'll get the hang of this Tom one day uh, well thank you to listen um, to our listeners thank you very much indeed for tuning in and listening to F1 Nation which is produced in association with Audio Boom nailed it see you next week <laughs>